1: In 2012, then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton spoke at an awards ceremony on Capitol Hill.
2: That work of building democracy never ends, not here.
1: Secretary Clinton told a story about a Burmese official, someone she met on one of her many travels abroad. This official said to her,
2: Help us learn how to be a democratic Congress, a parliament. He went on to tell me that they were trying to teach themselves by watching old segments of the West Wing.
1: (laughs) The West Wing. Not the American Constitution or the Federalist Papers. This official wanted to learn how American democracy works by watching the West Wing. In case you haven't seen it, the show centered on the occupants of a fictional White House, President Jed Bartlett, his family, and his staff. The series ran from 1999 to 2006, but the West Wing has had tremendous staying power. The cast reunited, in character, to support a Michigan judge for election in 2012.
3: She's running for state Supreme Court in the nonpartisan
1: section of the ballot. During President Obama's last year in office, Press Secretary C.J. Craig played by Allison Janney showed up at a White House press briefing. Hi
0: everyone. Good afternoon. Josh is out today. He has I uh, believe it's a root canal. <laughs> yeah, he has a root canal, but let's be honest, I'm um, I'm better
1: at this than he is anyway, right? Just between us. First I So, an President Bartlett's fictional White House often bleeds into real life. And even if you know it's fake, even if you're not watching it to learn about American democracy, it still affects the way you think about the president.
4: I think popular culture absolutely affects the way that people think politically.
1: Paul Musgrave teaches government at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He's researched the way television influences our perceptions about the real world.
4: Everybody wants to think that they are immune to fiction, even if they think that everyone else is going to be susceptible to it. Fiction has this enormous possibility to displace or even make you question your belief about what the world is because we experience it on such a personal level. So TV dramas, we know they're fiction but it's easy for them to creep into our psyche and then shape the way we see the world. And when you combine that with the fact that there's fictions depicting politics all around us, there's a huge amount of influence as to how we see international politics, domestic politics, political actors more generally being influenced by these depictions.
1: From the Vox Media Podcast Network and Vox.com, this is Primetime, a show about the power of television and how it affects and reflects our culture. I'm your host, Todd Vanderwer. This season, the president is on TV. How American presidents have used TV to further their political ambitions and how TV has used the presidency in turn. Today, the complicated legacy of the West Wing a show that's had a lasting influence on how a lot of Americans think about the presidency. When the West Wing was on the air during the Clinton and Bush years, a lot of liberal viewers were pining for a Democratic president with a strong sense of right and wrong, someone who could bring the country together. President Bartlett fulfilled that wish, and his fictional administration made for great entertainment— an idealistic vision of what politics could be. But the show's idealism painted an unrealistic picture of how American politics actually work. That's a problem for West Wing fans because the show sets its audience up for disappointment in the real world. Plus, the West Wing's liberalism was decidedly white and mostly male. It was idealistic, Yes, but that idealism left a lot of Americans out, and it obscured a very real partisan divide. The West Wing debuted in the waning days of the Clinton administration, late September 1999. Clinton had just barely survived his impeachment trial, and it was a difficult political moment, especially for Democrats. So the West Wing gave them the president they always wanted. In the pilot, a group of conservative voters are angry with Josh Lyman, a White House staffer played by Bradley Whitford. Josh is trying to apologize when in walks President Josiah Jed Bartlett, played by Martin Sheen.
4: Good afternoon, Mr. President. <laughs> Al. Uh, may I ask you a question, sir? Of course. If our children can buy pornography on any street corner for $5, isn't that too high a price to pay
5: for free speech? No. Really? On the other hand, I do think that $5 is too high a price to pay for pornography.
1: President Bartlett is quick-witted and smart. He makes the conservatives look silly. He even knows the Bible better than they do.
5: Then what's the first commandment? I am the Lord your God. Thou shalt worship no other God
3: before me.
1: President Bartlett was written as a moderate Catholic Democrat with a strong moral compass. In other words, the opposite of Bill Clinton, as many saw him in the late 1990s.
5: Part of the initial energy of the West Wing when it first went on the air was imagine if you had a sort of a Clinton administration without the scandals, Mm -hmm. without the compromises, without the sort of calculus that made it shift to the center when it was politically expedient or politically necessary.
1: Eli Addy is a writer and producer. His first job in Hollywood was with the West Wing in the show's third season. Before that, Addy had his own career in Washington.
5: I was special assistant to President Clinton and then Al Gore's chief speechwriter both in the White House and when he ran for president in the year 2000. The West Wing often drew on Addy's
1: experiences in the Clinton White House. In the 90s, a lot of liberal Democrats thought Clinton had leaned too far to the right to save his political career.
5: Bill Clinton had famously given a speech after Republicans took control of Congress halfway through his first term where he said the era of big government is over.
4: We know big government does not have all the answers. We know there's not a program for every problem.
5: And it was seen by liberals and, you know, people on the left in general as a kind of a defeat Mm -hmm. because he was conceding a big portion of the Republican agenda and essentially saying, look, if the country wants smaller government, I'll just find a way to manage it better and more compassionately. There was an episode of the West Wing where that idea was floated And then Richard Schiff's character, Toby Ziegler, gives a kind of a passionate speech in the Oval Office. The era of big government is over. You want to cut the line? I want to change the
4: sentiment. We're running away from ourselves. We have to say what we feel. That government, no matter what its failures in the past and in times to come, for that matter, government can be a place where people come together.
5: I think the typical West Wing episode got a lot of the conflicts right, got a lot of the sort of pressure points right, and then tacked on a much happier ending.
1: To Addie, a happier ending meant that President Bartlett didn't have to concede to the Republicans on big government. And that appealed to a lot of disillusioned Democrats in the real world. The West Wing only became more appealing to Democrats when George W. Bush took office. As partisan divides deepened with the Iraq War, the show still clung to the idea that a Democratic president could bring Republicans over to his side with one rousing speech.
5: Every once in a while, every once in a while, there's a day with an absolute right and an absolute wrong.
0: But those days almost always include body counts. Other than that, there aren't very many unnuanced moments in leading a country that's way too big for 10 words. I'm the president of the United States, not the president
1: of the people who agree with me. On the West Wing, politicians didn't make politically expedient choices. They tried to do what was hard and right instead of what was popular. And they were rewarded for it.
5: Much later in the series, when the actor Jimmy Smits joined the cast and was running for president as a kind of an upstart Latino congressman from Texas.
1: I got in this to improve a broken school system,
5: to fix entitlements because they're going bankrupt. To expand health coverage because it'll save money if fewer people show up in emergency rooms. His team wants him to air a sort of a vicious negative ad and they feel he needs to do it to put himself on the map and he refuses to do it on principle.
1: I will never say anything about my opponents or anything about anything without saying it myself right into the camera. You might not get to hear much of me, but when you do, you'll know I stand by it. At the last minute, Matt Santos decides not to run the negative ad. This episode aired in February 2005, a few months after the notorious Swift Boat ads helped President George W. Bush win his re-election bid against John Kerry. West Wing fans were hungry for a Matt Santos kind of candidate, an earnest, honest guy who refuses to run negative ads and still wins the election.
2: If I had to condense it to one word, it would be idealism.
1: Claire Hanscom is a writer and self-proclaimed West Wing fanatic.
2: I'm a very idealistic person, and the show really espouses the belief that you can be passionately committed to your country and want to serve.
1: Hanscom watched the show when it originally aired, and she found it so inspiring that she moved from Europe to Washington in 2012.
2: I helped organize the West Wing Weekend, which was the first West Wing fan convention, It seems weird to say I watch it as an escape from politics because, of course, it's politics, 100% politics. But there's only so much MSNBC I can watch these days, and that's partly because of the crazy stuff that's happening and how intense everything is and how angry a lot of it makes me. And as you can hear, I'm also British, so British politics is not much better slash maybe worse. So, (laughs) um, yeah, I love politics, but I don't necessarily need the real stuff all the time. (laughs) Because of
1: Brexit and President Trump, Hanscom is tuning in to the fictional Bartlett administration instead of MSNBC. And a lot of people are doing the same thing. Google Trends found a spike in users searching for the series right after Trump's election and his inauguration. And I know so many fans who are either re-watching the show or re rewatching the show.
2: There are moments, there are touching moments where you see Personally, that people like each other, they just disagree politically. And that's less and less easy to come by these days, I think, in real life.
3: It's understandable that people want escapism. Luke Savage is a staff writer for Jacobin Magazine. He's written about the West
1: Wing and American politics.
3: But the trouble is, there's that kind of escapism that's just helping you emotionally negotiate a difficult time, and then there's the kind of escapism that is retreating into fantasy as a form of politics. The West
1: Wing's idealism makes it an appealing escape, but that escape leaves some viewers disappointed and disillusioned with real-world Washington. And as idealistic as the show was about bridging the political divide, that idealism never extended to racial or gender diversity in the fictional White House. More on that after the break. Welcome back to Primetime. So the West Wing created a fictional Washington that was fair and civil. But that meant the show rarely talked about controversial topics, like race. That began with the cast itself. The pilot featured no actors of color. When the NAACP took the show to task, Dulé Hill was added to the cast to play presidential aide Charlie Young— He was the only African-American series regular, and he didn't have a lot of power or agency. He was an aide to the president, and his main storyline centered around him dating the president's daughter.
5: A lot of times, their idea of what a racial conversation is, is from the perspective of the white person.
1: Rhonda Penrice is a freelance writer and culture critic.
5: That's not really diversity. That's still a centering of whiteness.
1: And it wasn't just the lack of representation. The West Wing largely avoided racial political issues, which might be the most unrealistic thing about it.
5: There's not an era of any president's life in which race hasn't been an important factor in this country. I mean, it was an important factor when it was founded It was an important factor, World War I, World War II. You can't find an era where these issues are not prominent in a president's duties. Dulé Hill's Charlie
1: was the only major non-white character until Jimmy Smits joined the cast in the sixth season to play Matt Santos. Santos eventually became the first Latino president. I hereby announce my candidacy for president of these United States. Eli Addy worked on The West Wing as a writer and producer, and one of his biggest regrets about the show is that it didn't tackle racial issues
5: more directly. It would have been great to have an African-American president on that show or to have continued for a season or two with what would have been the first Latino president in our fictional world in Matt Santos, the Jimmy Smith's character, because as that character, when he ran for president, really struggled with his race, and whether people were going to see him as a candidate for president or a Brown candidate for president, those are very um, real tensions in politics. I think politics in America is all about race and always has been. The question is, how openly is it being talked about?
1: On the West Wing, it wasn't. The West Wing's fictional White House had plenty of women working in it, but Alison Janney's C.J. Craig was the only woman in a position of power— She went from White House press secretary to chief of staff.
2: Most of the secretaries are women, and most of the quote-unquote important people are men. But A, I think it was reflective of its time. And B, sadly, I think it is still reflective of a lot of reality.
1: Claire Hanscom, the West Wing superfan.
2: There's this scene where Sam is complaining because the men's gym the White House doesn't have bathrobes and the women's does because there are so few women. Where'd you get the bathrobe? The gym.
3: The bathrobes at the gym?
2: and the women's locker room. But not the men's? Yeah.
3: Now that's outrageous. There's a thousand men working here and 50 women.
1: Yeah, and it's the bathrobes that's outrageous. And it's true. Washington is still run predominantly by white men as it was in the late 1990s and early 2000s. But both Bush and Clinton appointed women and people of color to high-ranking positions in their administrations. So why didn't the West Wing? The show shapes the way its audience sees politics and the president. Imagine if the writers had shown us a Black president or a woman president back in 1999. The day-to-day lives of West Wing characters did seem really exciting. Everybody was tearing through the halls, rattling off rapid-fire dialogue. Aaron Sorkin's White House seemed like the most important place you could ever possibly work that's enthralling even to people like me who are more skeptical about the show's political vision. Here's Eli Addy again.
5: It stripped away the clutter of what it's like to work in the White House, you know, and the fact that people spend a lot of their day answering emails and sitting in boring meetings and gets to the kind of essence of decision-making. The goal of the West Wing was to entertain people first, Mm -hmm. second, third, fourth, and fifth. So of course the show took Hollywood liberties— When I had started on the show and had just left Washington politics, my friends from Washington would call me all the time and say, why does everybody walk so fast in the hallway? And why do they, people don't, you know, talk like that at the same time. I think on the West Wing, there are five people who do just about everything in the White House. They all have 15 jobs. This happens on TV
1: all the time, and I get the entertainment value. But the West Wing has so much influence Remember Hillary Clinton's story about the Burmese official who used the show to learn about American democracy? What's left on West Wing's cutting room floor, that stuff might be kind of boring. But if you're trying to understand how American democracy works, it's important. After all, the Bartlett administration has few signature accomplishments. On the West Wing, policy outcomes and the sometimes excruciating process that leads up to them don't really matter. What matters is saying the right thing at the right time in the
3: most rousing way possible. One of the biggest problems with the way rhetoric features on the show is that it's not really about anything, and yet the show lends it tremendous weight. Jacobin's Luke Savage again. You know, you can have a horrible national tragedy or a, a really divisive national debate, and then, you know, with the appropriate kind of pep talk, the speechwriters are able to bury themselves in, in their offices for a few hours, uh, drink too many cups of coffee, and come out with something that, when delivered by Josiah Bartlett, basically solves the problem. That really is fantasy. That's not how things work.
1: The idea that the perfect speech can solve all our problems it's crept into the real-life White House.
4: All of these Obama-era junior officials were talking about how they would go to work in the Obama White House and it would be just like the West Wing. Professor Paul Musgrave. That this was the way that they had seen reality portrayed and that they wanted reality to be. And I think that one of the reasons why 2016 felt so personally disappointing for a lot of folks who identified with those politics was that the antithesis of the West Wing actually won the election. I mean, literally, right? It's the West Wing getting defeated by The Apprentice.
1: TV dramas aren't documentaries. They don't have to teach us lessons about politics. Giving viewers an escape from an exhausting reality is a worthy goal, and it's one the West Wing achieved week after week, and still does on Netflix. But that means we, the show's fans, have to temper our expectations for our real-life leaders. The perfect speech isn't going to heal our partisan divide. Solving political problems will always be messy and frustrating, and it'll take a lot longer than 60 Minutes. Once a week. Next time, we'll revisit one of the most popular shows to depict the presidency, 24. The show premiered right after the 9-11 attacks and aired at the height of the War on Terror. But how did the show's depictions of counterterrorism and torture influence our thoughts on what was happening in the real world? And how did the show make an appearance in and I promise you I am not making this up, statements made by a very real Supreme Court justice. 24 and the War on Terror, next week on Primetime. (music) Primetime is produced by Bridget Armstrong. Mixing and scoring by Gautam Shrikishan. Thanks to Rebel Talk Studios and our engineer, Ernesto Hurtado. Our researcher is Michelle Delgado. Our social media manager is Lexi Shapittel. Nishat Kurwa is the executive producer of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Jillian Weinberger is the senior producer of audio at Vox. Special thanks to Eleanor Barkhorn, Allison Rocky, and Jen Trollio. I'm your host, Todd Vanderwerf. Talk to you next week.